Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the CBS News Roundup ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, please, for more help for civilians in Gaza as fighting between Israel and Hamas rages on. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's scared. A guilty verdict for the founder of FTX. But this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, scientists moving to change the English monikers of birds named for people. Who were involved in slavery or the atrocious treatment of indigenous peoples. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. Israel's military said Friday that its ground troops are continuing to exchange gunfire with Hamas militants in Gaza and that it is launching targeted attacks in Gaza City to destroy terrorist cells. This is U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to urge protection for civilians. And it's consistently stressed the need for Israel to operate according to international humanitarian law. I also emphasize that the protection of civilians must take place not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, where incitement and extremist violence against Palestinians must be stopped. At a news conference in Tel Aviv, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reminded the world of the brutality of the Hamas terror attacks on October 7th, telling the story of two young boys in Israel. Where's daddy? One says. The other says, they killed daddy. Where's my mommy? And then the terrorist comes in and casually opens the refrigerator and starts to eat from it. That's what we're dealing with. The secretary once again pledged support for Israel while also stressing the importance of minimizing civilian casualties in Gaza and increasing humanitarian aid to the millions of Palestinian civilians living in the Hamas-controlled territory. We need to do more to protect Palestinian civilians. The diplomatic trip comes as Israeli airstrikes continue, leaving Palestinians to dig through the rubble to find survivors. Israel's military says it has encircled Gaza City, and the IDF released footage of what it says are its soldiers uncovering Hamas tunnels. Secretary Blinken says a focus of his trip is to prevent the war from growing into a wider regional conflict, even as the head of Hezbollah, the Iran-backed militia in Lebanon, threatens escalation. Israel says civilians in the north of the country were injured in a rocket attack from Lebanon. It responded by targeting Hezbollah infrastructure. Natalie Brand, CBS News, the White House. CBS's Pamela Falk has been monitoring reaction to the violence at the United Nations and joins us. On Friday morning, the U.N. humanitarian chief, Martin Griffiths, who's been in the region a lot, called what is going on what most diplomats at the U.N. believe, and that is 
what the UN is not doing is a blight on the world's collective conscience. And why he said that is the UN has not condemned Hamas yet. Uh, the Security Council can't come to any agreement. The General Assembly rejected a Canada-U.S. amendment to a resolution that would have just mentioned Hamas, didn't even talk about Israel's right of self-defense. So it's left to the regional partners. Egypt, Israel, U.S., and Qatar are speaking here at the U.N. and in the region to try to get a resolution and at least some kind of humanitarian pause. And that's what the U.S. is trying to do in the region as well. Pamela, what are some of the other nations saying about this? I know the WHO has been speaking out. I know that some of the Arab nations at Latin American nations have been very angry and disturbed about the with the state of civilians in, in uh, the Gaza Strip. In terms of what you've seen at the United Nations, India has been a very strong supporter unqualified supporter of Israel. On the other hand, you see a lot of Latin American countries that have voiced uh, criticism. So Chile and Colombia both recalled their ambassadors, Bolivia cut relations. In the Arab world, you're seeing an awful lot of support for some kind of either a ceasefire or a pause so that all of the innocent victims, the civilians in, in the Palestinian territories and in Gaza, can get medical aid and help. Many Israelis are rushing to buy guns in case of another attack. CBS's Ian Lee. At this gun range in Tel Aviv, Orange Sports has just one goal. Needed something to make me feel more confident to protect my family. Hamas's murderous attack on October 7th shattered Israel's sense of security. The people who are supposed to protect the nation failed. I think October 7th changed Israel completely. And no, no matter how you try to, to look at it, we're a changed nation. Gil Shemesh is teaching people not only how to shoot, but how to do it while taking fire. From October 8th, we had a flood of people coming in. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's scared. More than 150,000 people have applied for a handgun license since the war started compared to roughly 13,000 in the whole of last year, as Israelis take security into their own hands. If it comes to it, they can defend themselves, they can defend their families. More than 1,000 people, including some Palestinians with foreign passports and dozens of injured people, have gotten out of the Gaza Strip in recent days through the Rafah crossing. A woman from Southern California was among them to the relief of her son. KPIX-TV reporter Sarah Donchi. After weeks of stealing himself for a phone call that his mother was no longer alive, Nabil al-Sharafa picked up the call from his uncle and heard the news he wasn't expecting. And he was telling us, Naila, my, my mother, escaped. She got out. She's in on the Rafah side. And he just said this, sent this message. And I could feel his, the tears in his eyes. And it's just so sad because he... He also doesn't know if he's going to make it, if he's ever going to see her again. Nabil's mother, Naela, who lives in Camarillo, had been visiting family in Gaza when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Ever since then, Nabil had been desperately trying to get her out of Gaza via Egypt. But the crossing was either too busy or the border was closed. 
Naela took this video inside her family home in Gaza. They're bumping the area. Well, I remember after that communication blackout, I spoke to mom and she was just in tears. And everyone was in tears. Just they, they didn't know. They thought, that's it. They, they cut us off from the world and they're going to finish us. Nabil says she hid out with dozens of people rationing food and water while he frantically contacted government officials stateside, begging them to help his mom. When Nabil finally got the call from his uncle that Nayela left Gaza, he called the moment bittersweet. It was so hard to tell him I was happy. Hearing him cry, a 50-something-year-old man. Nabil says her thoughts stayed with her family trapped in a war zone on the other side. Right now, there is just a plan for her to rest, to make sure that mentally and her morale just goes up a little bit because she's just terrified for her family. Um, and so we're, we just want her to rest there with family in Egypt. And then slowly we'll start talking about booking her a flight to come back to the U.S. Coming up, calls for a federal probe into a disturbing death in Mississippi. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. A verdict Thursday in one of the highest profile financial crime cases in years as the founder of FTX is found guilty on all seven counts of fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering after more than two weeks of testimony. CBS's Errol Barnett was in the courtroom. I didn't ever... uh try to commit fraud on anyone. Sam Bankman-Fried, the former CEO of the crypto trading company FTX, has long professed his innocence about allegations that fraud led to his company's collapse last year. I substantially underestimated what the scale of a market crash could look like. But it took a Manhattan jury less than four hours to decide otherwise, convicting the 31-year-old of stealing as much as $10 billion in customer funds and defrauding those customers, as well as the lenders of FTX's affiliated hedge fund Alameda Research. Prosecutors are calling this, quote, one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The cryptocurrency industry might be new, but this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time. Bankman-Fried stood silently as the verdict was read. He just wasn't credible on the stand. And when your only defense is your credibility and saying, I didn't know what I was doing, rose the level of criminal conduct then that's a rough place. CBS News legal contributor Jessica Levinson believes the jury did not buy the defendant's argument that Bankman-Fried simply made mistakes with no criminal intent, persuaded by witnesses who testified they saw the wrongdoing firsthand, including his ex-girlfriend and former Alameda CEO, Caroline Ellison. 
And they said Sam Bankman-Fried knew exactly what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. The defense was not able to rebut that. My client, Mr. Bankman-Fried, maintains his innocence, and we're going to continue to vigorously fight the charges against him. Bankman-Fried now faces a potential sentence of 110 years in prison. It could still be the case that if Sam Bankman-Fried ever does walk out of a federal prison, he will be an old man. A new jobs report finds some companies are cutting back on hiring, but is that a good thing? Some experts think it is. Stores are ramping up hiring for the busy holiday season. Jonathan Merchant came to this job fair at a New York mall. The college student is looking for extra work to help with tuition. And I'm really struggling with, with paying it. That's why I'm here finding a second job. While retailers are stepping up hiring, other industries are slowing down. The Labor Department says overall the economy added 150,000 jobs in October and the previous two months were revised down significantly. The unemployment rate ticked up from 3.8 to 3.9 percent. The auto workers strike created part of the drag. The impact of the auto strikes is that there were 33,000 fewer jobs in October in the manufacturing sector. But those jobs will be factored back in next month, with employees returning to work after tentative agreements were recently reached with the three major U.S. automakers. The overall softening of the job market is actually being viewed as a positive sign. Efforts to lower inflation are working. The Federal Reserve has been boosting interest rates in an attempt to slowly weaken the economy. The Fed believes less hiring will reduce American spending power and ease higher prices. This report really does show that Federal Reserve policy has not cratered the job market, has not cratered the economy, and inflation is coming down. Earlier this week, the Fed decided to leave interest rates unchanged. Many analysts believe the latest jobs report could help influence the board to do the same at next month's meeting. Naomi Ruckham, CBS News, New York. In Jackson, Mississippi, calls for a federal probe after a woman says authorities waited for months to tell her that her son had been struck and killed by an off-duty police officer in his cruiser. 37-year-old Dexter Wade died in March, but his mother says she didn't find out about his death until August. He was my only son, and I would have never thought this had happened to him. Betterston Wade says she last saw her son Dexter on March 5th when he left home after an argument. Days later, Wade reported him missing to the Jackson Police Department. Wade said she spent months following up and searching the city for her son, even asking for help online. He just disappeared off the face of earth and nobody knew where he was. None of his friends, nobody. What she didn't know was that Dexter was already dead and buried in a grave marked with only a number at a cemetery outside a county prison. All the time, he was right down there in the morgue. All they had to say was, Miss Wade, your son is in the morgue. According to his death certificate, Dexter was killed on March 5th, less than an hour after he left home, when he was accidentally struck by an off-duty officer driving a Jackson police SUV near an interstate exit. Wade says police told her about the incident on August 24th, nearly six months after his death. Give me a reason to really, why y'all did not contact me? Why y'all didn't knock on my door? Wade said a coroner identified Dexter 
from a prescription medication that he was carrying and received the next-of-kin information from a medical clinic. According to Wade, the coroner was unable to reach her, but she was told Jackson police tried to contact her several times. Wade says she never received a call. It was, in fact, an accident and that there was no malicious intent. Jackson's mayor addressed Wade's case last week. There was a lack of communication with the missing persons division, the coroner's office, and accident investigation. Wade's frustration with the city runs deep. Last year, a jury convicted a Jackson police officer of manslaughter and the beating death of her brother. It was intentional that they did not contact her. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump is now representing the Wade family. We're going to petition the court to have his body exhumed and have a independent autopsy performed and then give him a proper funeral for his mother and his daughters and his family. CBS News reached out to the Jackson Police Department but did not hear back. Crump said he hopes to have Dexter Wade's body exhumed next week. Jerika Duncan, CBS News, New York. There's controversy over company giveaway in Florida involving a traditional holiday food and long guns. A Florida roofing company is giving away a free turkey and a free AR-15 when you purchase a new roof in November. The owner of Roof Easy in Cape Coral is offering what he calls the Roof and Gobble Special. You're getting a turkey for togetherness, a roof to protect your home, and an AR-15 to protect your family. Some people love it and are sharing it on social media. Others, like Patty Brigham from Stop Gun Violence Florida, are not fans of the promotion. The AR-15 is the choice of mass shooters. She calls it sick and says it does not promote family values. Jen Clark, CBS News. Coming up, making a very important item for the U.S. military. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. In Los Angeles, the city is trying to bridge a teacher gap. 8% of the students are black, but there are very few educators of color. KCBS-TV's Amanda Starantino introduces us to a couple with a plan to change that. You know what, class? Yes, yes, yes. Jamal Randall, or as his fifth graders at Windsor Hills Elementary School in L.A. call him, Mr. Lee. Page 85. Is one part of 2% of black male educators. A lot of black males have bad experiences in school themselves, me included. And even past that emotional and mental background, there comes other big barriers. Teacher salary is, is not something <laughs> that's, that's heavy, right? It's not a big thing. Um... But we do, you know, I mean, yeah, it's been tough. I'm just going to say it's been tough, yeah. Working to change that are doctors Peter and Didi Watts, educators themselves. It's a great possibility that students can go through their whole K-12 experience and not have one black male teacher. Their idea for Teachers Village sparked during the pandemic when educators were leaving the workforce. How do we support teachers who are working with young people so that they can persist in the field? So we train in the soft skills in areas that you don't get in a teacher mentoring program. 
All within a block of each other in Pico Union is a training center with multiple facilities to get their teaching credentials and learn life skills like financial literacy. But the big part of retaining teachers is a need for affordable housing. We wanted to be able to provide housing for them to live in while they're in our program, charge them minimum amount to live so they can focus on becoming great teachers. The couple owned this house but moved out recently so they can offer it to men in their Teachers Village program. Cooking together, they can be talking about lesson plans, challenges of teaching, but really building community. This house is just the beginning with more planned right in their backyard. Now this property is just the first of eight that are planned for these teacher villages in Los Angeles that will eventually house 40 teachers at one time. That equates to about 120 new black male teachers being placed in Los Angeles, moving the needle from 2% in LA to about 23% black male teachers teaching in the classroom. It's a 10 year goal to build multiple of these spaces for black men to live in and to be taught to be good teachers right here in the community. Working with them on debt reduction, savings, home buying, so that when they get their job as a teacher, they have that uh, first, second year teacher salary. Uh, they're in a better position to be able to go and purchase a house in the neighborhood. All right, who would like to start reading first? All of this work is going right back into our classrooms with teachers like Mr. Lee, who is a fellow in the Teacher's Village. They just taught me so much that I feel like I've never actually learned from any other experience as a teacher that really benefited the way that I teach now. Basically how I incorporate all of my learnings to all of my students. It's been amazing. For many, this Sunday means it's time to fall back, meaning the sun will go down earlier. Not everyone is pleased about that. When it ends, I Greg Robinson has mixed feelings about turning the clocks back, marking the end of daylight saving time. He likes that extra hour of sleep. When I lose an hour of sunlight at the end of the day after work, I don't like that. Neither does Alberto Parajon. In the wintertime, it gets dark around 5 or 6. I much rather it got dark at seven. Dr. Petros Lavonis with the American Psychiatric Association says it's not just inconvenient, the time change could affect your mental health. In a new survey, one in five Americans said they're negatively impacted by it. This is a very, very high number of people who actually say that uh, uh, the change in time will give them some depression, some discomfort, some uneasiness. According to the survey, two-thirds of adults say they notice at least one behavioral change, from sleeping more to feeling fatigued or depressed. The poll also found women are nearly twice as likely as men to say their mental health has been negatively affected by the fall time change. Dr. Lavonis warns some people may develop seasonal affective disorder. There are also people who are going to have a more severe form of this uh, winter blues, feeling lonely, feeling uh, depressed, stop having interest in the things that gave you pleasure. He recommends spending more time outdoors, even as the daylight hours decrease. Frequent outdoor exercise and taking breaks to experience the daylight are some of the ways you can ward off those winter blues. Cristian Benavides, CBS News, Miami. People are paying a pretty penny these days to put food on the table. The Consumer Price Index shows that the cost of groceries rose 3.7% between September of 2022 and this year. But one massive retailer is trying to help folk put together an affordable Thanksgiving dinner. 
That's Totally Target. What's Totally Target this Thanksgiving is a meal for four for under $25. It includes a 10-pound frozen turkey and all the fixings, including potatoes, green beans, mushroom soup, cranberry sauce, stuffing, and gravy. It's available online and in stores. You can even splurge for an extra $10 to add garlic and herb seasoning, chopped mushrooms, and crispy onion strings. Wendy Gillette, CBS News. In our series, Eye on America, we take a look at something that's been part of the U.S. military for more than half a century, a pen. But it's one that's been used in every conflict zone on Earth. CBS's Janet Shamlian with the story of the extraordinary people who make them. More than four million pens roll off the assembly line in this North Carolina manufacturing plant every year. But the people who make them have never seen them and don't use them. I think that this place saved me. It brought me back. Stephanie Sellers, like most here, is legally blind. Working for the National Industries for the Blind which inked a deal to produce the Skillcraft brand pens for the government 55 years ago and has been doing so since. Coming here, you see what people are capable of, and I saw that the world was open to me. Richard Oliver is a 27-year employee. Mustafa, how are you, my friend? The work has given him, in hundreds over five decades, the ability to provide for their families, buy a house, put children through college, that's critical because the unemployment rate for the blind and visually impaired hovers near 70%. Without the jobs that exist here, where would some of these workers be working? They wouldn't be working. They would be at home. There's a lot of us that are blind or impaired. We got a reason to get up. We have a job and we have fun doing it. It's work that's changing lives. Even as the pen used everywhere from U.S. post offices to combat front lines hasn't changed. So you think that people who are blind or have other disabilities can't produce and they can't perform at the same levels of other people. And we're proving that wrong every single day. Through their work, writing a new story. For Eye on America, Janet Shamlin, Greensboro, North Carolina. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, how some names of birds are linked to racism. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. This time we're talking birds, specifically those named for humans, some of whom were enslavers, white supremacists, or people who robbed the graves of indigenous people. There's Townsend's Warbler, a pretty bird with black and yellow stripes and a friendly song. But it is named for John Kirk Townsend, who writes in his journals about his collection of skulls stolen from the graves of Native Americans to promote his theory that they were racially inferior. And then there's Bachman Sterrell with its rippling call. The brownish-gray bird with a rusty-colored crown is named for Reverend John Bachman who condoned slavery and wrote that the intellect of the Negro is greatly inferior to that of the Caucasian, and he is therefore incapable of self-government. There's been a backlash against one of the most famous birders in U.S. history, John James Audubon, who owned slaves and held racist views of blacks and indigenous people. 
At least two chapters of the Bird Conservation Group, the National Audubon Society, voted to change their names. This week, the American Ornithological Society announced that it will change all English bird names currently named after people in an effort to address past wrongs and get more people involved in the enjoyment, protection, and study of birds. The field of birding is overwhelmingly white, and AOS President-elect Sarah Morris says racial insensitivity should be rejected and that the group needs to break down as many barriers to participation as it can. President-elect Morris joins us to explain. We are changing all eponymous bird names, and that means any bird name, and I should back up to say we are changing all common names for birds that have people's names in them. Uh, We're named for people. Okay. Uh, Talk to me about how this came about. This is a process that has taken a fair amount of time. It started with a group of relatively young ornithologists who um, brought forward the exclusionary nature of of some specific bird names. And um, we've had a Congress to discuss this. We put a committee together to work on this. And they brought forward a set of recommendations and the council voted to approve the recommendations that we are working with today. Okay. I know that some names are felt to be racially insensitive, kind of in the same way that some of the Confederate names for military bases have been offending people, right? So talk to me off the top about Townsend's Warbler warbler and what that means to people. So we're trying really hard not to focus on any specific individuals at this time because we've made the decision to change all eponymous names. There are numerous people for whom birds were named who had, who were involved in slavery or the atrocious uh, treatment of indigenous peoples. And we want to get away from focusing on those people and to really get people focusing on birds. Well, I guess I'm asking because if I'm layperson, right, and I'm just like, what are they talking about? You know, I mean, I know the Audubon Society has had a bit of a reckoning about this because of their founder. So, and I understand you're trying not to focus on somebody, but if you could give me one name at least so that people have think, oh, I know that bird or something like that, you know? So we've actually made a change already to what used to be called the McCown's Longspur, and it's now called the Thick-Billed Longspur. And we've actually explained the rationale behind making that decision because this was someone who whose actions were ones that were particularly egregious. Um, but going forward, we're really trying to focus on getting away from who is bad enough to have the name removed or who is good enough to keep a name and to focus on the birds themselves because we've lost 3 billion birds in the recent past and we need as many people as possible focusing on studying birds, conserving birds, and making a difference. And exclusionary names make a difference for people to be involved and excited about birds and bird conservation. What's your process going to be for changing the process by which birds get English names? We still have a lot that's unknown, but we know that next year in 2024, we will be piloting 
somewhere between eight and 10 species that we will pilot a process. It will involve a new committee. It will involve public comment and public in, public um, engagement in choosing the new names. And as we go through that process, we will refine it. And so there's a there's still a lot that's unknown, but we're excited about having both a a public engagement portion of this and also a new process that maintains the rigor but provides much more opportunity for engagement. Finally, I've got to ask about bird conservation because I live in D.C., right? And actually, I was just in Chicago and there were there were dead birds all over downtown, which is crazy. And I know a lot of them have been found on the ground in D.C. as well. So just talk to me briefly about why it is so important to protect birds right now. Well, as, as I mentioned, we have lost three billion birds in terms of the bird populations. And that's not due to any one cause. There are numerous causes that that are contributing. Some of that is due to um, buildings. Some of that is due to uh, man-made structures, or or um, some of that is is due to uh, cats or other predators that are in the environment. And we know that our our concern about the loss of birds needs to engage as many people as possible in helping us study, helping us conserve, helping us maintain uh, the birds that we we love in these areas. So there are people out there that are afraid of them, right? Talk. Can you talk to me about what this world would look like without birds? Would it kill us all? I can't imagine a world without birds. Think about a spring morning without birdsong. Think about a summer's day without seeing whatever the bird is in your backyard. For me, it might be robins or goldfinches or or um, catbirds. I I I, I have a nineteen year old daughter. I can't imagine her life without birds. I can't imagine if she decides to have a family, what that would be like without the sound and the sight of birds that bring so much joy to so many people. That's American Ornithological Society president-elect Sarah Morris. Coming up. Shake your arm out because you're going to get blood back in and oxygen back into your muscles when you do that. A 77-year-old proves it's never too late for inspiration. Use the flat of your feet. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Some people after a certain age get all... Wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo. ...when asked to consider trying a new thing. But from our series Never Too Late, CBS's Elaine Cajado introduces us to a man who picked up rock climbing at the age of 69. It is a grueling, grinding, physical sport. Getting to the top requires brains and brawn. 
On a recent visit to a New York rock climbing gym. Sometimes you'll fail, but it's like that. It's a failure that keeps you coming back. We discovered a range of reasons. It's exciting and fun, but also turns my arms into noodles. Why people climb. Climbing makes me feel healed. Challenged. Alive. Fulfilled. Steve Cohen started climbing seven years ago, just months yep. before his 70th birthday. Now at 77, he's experienced enough to show others, including this reporter, the ropes. Shake your arm out because you're going to get blood back in and oxygen back into your muscles when you do that. <laughs> Such a clinical analysis up here. <laughs> Dr. Cohen. <laughs> By day, Dr. Cohen treats dermatology patients in New York City. Thanks. By night, he's tackling other challenges on the wall. He taught me climbing, believe it or not. Dr. Richard Zhu was scared of heights until his former colleague and mentor dragged him to the climbing gym after work a couple of years ago. Today, Zhu says he still looks up to Cohen. I think he's still a kid and he's still a growing boy. It really amazes me. He could do a lot of great things on this wall. I wish I could do when I'm at his age. Sports have always been a part of Cohen's life. He went to Penn State on a gymnastics scholarship and won the NCAA Individual All-Around Championship twice. In 1968, he made it to the Olympics. Use the flat of your feet. More than half a century later, Cohen is reaching for his next peak, this time in New York's Schwangunk Mountains, or the Gunks, about two hours north of the city. How did you first get into rock climbing? I met someone at a party, and I started asking him what he did for exercise, and he said he liked to go to the Gunks here to climb, and that he climbed in a gym in Brooklyn. Within a week, I had met him there at that gym, and within one session, I was totally hooked. Part of the draw is the parallel to his day job. As a physician, you are in a problem-solving mode. You're scoping out a route, and then you're trying to solve the problem of getting to your endpoint. It is a very analytical process. The socialization, though, is really important. And I have found that the people that I come in contact with are in a different phase of their lives, and I'm able to share that with them. It sounds like you don't take your mobility for granted at all. You definitely don't take it for granted. A mindset he's maintained since his hip replacement at age 40. For a couple of years, I was really using a cane, and I couldn't really move around well. That must have been difficult for uh, you. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> but um, I had a great surgeon. It has enabled me to have you know, a, a life of hiking and biking and swimming and climbing. What would you say to people who may be thinking about exploring a passion or taking up a new hobby? You're never too old. For me, the most satisfying thing is to pursue something that is a, a super challenge and to accomplish it. That is worth many fist bumps. <laughs> CBS is Elaine Cajano. And as if you're not inspired enough yet, CBS's Michael George has a story of a young woman who's running her first marathon while undergoing chemotherapy for a serious disorder. She tells us how she overcame her diagnosis and how she hopes her passion can help others find theirs. At age 15, Leanna Scaglione's life changed forever. An aspiring ballerina, she started having intense pain in her hips and quads. It just got way too much, and I was like, Mom, I can't do this anymore. Doctors found a large tumor on her spine and diagnosed her with neurofibromatosis, a genetic disorder that causes tumors to grow on nerve tissue. 
She was confined to a wheelchair. It was very, very devastating for me, knowing that that dream was pretty much done. Um, I was told I probably wasn't going to dance again. She spent the next year and a half learning to walk normally again. Now at 32, she doesn't just walk, she runs. I shocked myself because I didn't think running was actually possible because I was in a wheelchair as a teenager. She started running during the pandemic and it soon became her passion. This weekend, she'll be competing in her first marathon, but the path hasn't been easy. Training while undergoing chemotherapy and more hurdles lie ahead. In a few months, she faces surgery to remove a tumor that will leave her deaf in one year. There were times that the side effects were so bad that it was just easier for me to rest on the couch because not moving was the best thing for me. Leanna is running on the Children's Tumor Foundation charity team, raising money to find a cure for neurofibromatosis. I'd want to be an example that despite these odds against you, you can still live your life and have it be fulfilling. Proving step by step that limits are made to be broken. Michael George, CBS News, New York. Okay, Beatles fans, you might want to turn up your radio. That long-awaited new tune by the Fab Four, and we don't mean that tribute band in California, is finally out. CBS's Vicki Barker has more on the shiny new single. Those lush harmonies out for a final canter. It's probably like the last Beatles song. And we've all played on it, so it is a genuine Beatle recording. Paul McCartney and his fellow surviving Beatle Ringo Starr working from a 1970s cassette recording by the late John Lennon cleaned up using AI. George Harrison contributed riffs before his death in 2001. Vicki Barker, CBS News, London. Finally, what should you do with those scary jack-o'-lanterns you carved now that Halloween is over? Unless you were the sort that's going to pop your leftover pumpkin in a blender to make pumpkin coffee or pie. Yeah, no idea how to do that. John Tool at the Horticulture Research Center in Minnesota says you can use them as a birdhouse. You could take this guy, hollow out a little hole in there, and let the birds actually make a nest inside it. Or you could offer it to that neighbor who has these on their balcony or in their backyard. <laughs> or you can just let it deflate over the winter and give it to your garden as a present in the spring. By next season, it'll pretty much be just mush and it'll be nice compostable material. That way, you're helping the environment. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to weekendroundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. 
Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> <laughs> respond to quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. See, that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> sure, I responded to everything because responding to you, putting reruns up on the podcast, was like a form of employment. Yeah. I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.